Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jason Scott to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Jason is a co-managing partner and on the board of directors of Encourage Capital, a US investment firm that seeks to change the way investment capital is used to solve critical environmental and social problems. The firm was formed through the combination of Wolfenson Fund Management LP and EKO Asset Management Partners LLC. Prior to EKO, Jason was a founding director and investment analyst at Generation Investment Management, co-founded by David Blood and former US Vice President Al Gore. Jason also co-founded and jointly leads the CREO Syndicate, a network of family offices investing in clean tech, renewables, and other environmental opportunities. So thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time today to join me on Financing Social Entrepreneurs. Thanks for having me. So Jason, you've been in the, I guess, the, the world of impact investment in, in different roles uh, for some time. Can you tell me a little bit about Encourage Capital, uh, your role there today, and also maybe a little bit about your background and the journey to set up the business? Sure, and, and maybe I'll, I'll start with the background because it informs how we ended up uh, starting Encourage. Um, I, uh, I came to this uh, market through more conventional uh, investment path uh, with a firm called Generation Investment Management in London. We actually uh, picked software stocks and was involved in helping to get the firm up and running. And in that process, uh, our chairman was a fellow named Al Gore. Uh, he did a slideshow and made a movie about climate change. And like many people, uh, it really did change the direction of my career. I, I went from being really interested in uh, multiples of cloud-based computing companies to, um, I guess, CO2 in the clouds is one way to say it. And um, I uh, developed a real interest in environmental markets in particular and helped Generation set up a, a fund called the Climate Solutions Fund to invest in companies that were part of the solution to climate change. In that process, uh, I realized that I saw a very specific opportunity in, uh, in the U.S. to invest in these emerging markets for things like water, carbon credits, biodiversity, um, fisheries, etc. And so uh, in 2007... Uh, I started transitioning out of generation and, and with the support of David and some other partners there, started a new firm uh, called Echo Asset Management Partners with a colleague and co-founder, a fellow named Ricardo Bayon, 
Ricardo uh, came to environmental markets from a research perspective and been a fellow at a number of foundations, started a number of nonprofits, and uh, decided that he wanted to use that knowledge to invest in commercial transactions that uh, helped create a better environment using environmental markets, pricing externalities. So we put our uh, brains together, uh, some money from some family offices, uh, David and uh, the, the big other investor when we founded our firm was the family office of Tim Wolfenson from the World Bank. Um, his son, Adam Wolfenson, was one of our founding board members. And so we went off and running in 2008 to try to look at environmental markets transactions uh, that we thought had some materially interesting environmental impact, but also commercial risk-adjusted financial returns. So that was that was pretty successful in um, some ways we were hoping and some ways we didn't expect. We raised a small pool of capital to invest in carbon credits in the California market, which was a emerging environmental market that actually has turned out to be one of the most robust and consistently sustainable carbon markets in the world. Um, we were involved in helping develop and finance a few hundred million dollars worth of agricultural and water transactions uh, in the U.S. and eventually um, in other countries as well. And finally, and this was a surprising part, uh, we found out that there was actually a market for investment research and advice uh, when it came to helping family offices, foundations, and other asset owners develop investment strategies where their their environmental impact and their financial returns could be aligned um, and, and fully correlated in a positive way. Great. Uh, after running that business for a couple of years, we actually decided to merge our business with that of the Wolfenson family office, who are our largest shareholders. They had a business called Wolfenson Fund Management that managed a few hundred million dollars of investments in into emerging markets companies, mostly in what they call inclusive finance or financial services. And so we merged two firms together in uh, 2016 with really the vision of creating an investment research and advisory firm that would be um, uh, outcomes focused, uh, but uh, gen generate commercial financial returns. So really start with the end in mind of what kind of social or environmental problem our investors interested in solving and then design investment strategies, whether they be funds or investment holding companies or development companies whether they be projects or uh, equity or debt, but design products um, and investment vehicles that could both solve those problems and, uh, and make money. So uh, that's where we're at. Maybe I'll stop there. Great. Yes. Strategies. Yes. Uh, that's what we're doing. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, just a quick question. Sorry, have you got uh, your notifications on? They, they, I keep hearing these kind of sounds as if you're getting emails or texts or something. I, I've had to learn how to turn these off because they're. Uh, uh, are, are you are you on an Apple computer? Let's see if, uh, yeah, let's see what we have here. 
Because I think where you can go through to your notifications, they're hard, quite hard to track down them all. Yeah, I found it, yeah. It, it, yeah. Uh, I can... It just turns the sound off. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I got it. <laughs> Great. Yeah, very good. Very good, very good. Great. So can you set the kind of scene a little bit here? Because... Uh, um, you mentioned uh, the importance, the uh, underlying this, this idea of commercial returns. We're talking about private sure. capital here, going into yeah. areas where traditionally it, it hasn't. Um, so, w- what is the motivation here? Why is this necessary? So, I think from a, I guess I'll start with the financial perspective, and then maybe talk about the impact perspective. From a financial perspective, I think with some of the most sophisticated families and other asset owners, they are realizing that the world is changing, capital markets are changing, society is changing, and that if they want to invest for the long term and generate, uh, create alpha, generate above market rate returns, they need to understand some of the social and environmental drivers. that are causing that change and are trying to find ways to invest uh, around those those themes and opportunities. So investing in the low carbon economy, sustainable food systems, inclusive financial systems for the world's poor, um, environmental markets that uh, make polluters pay for externalities, things like that. I think from a pure financial perspective, are investment themes that are increasingly interesting to uh, families, foundations, and other long-term investors who believe in investment research, uh, who believe that you can generate alpha if you take kind of a a long-term approach and if you're willing to look at ideas that um, other people aren't. Like that's kind of the definition of how you make money as opposed to uh, you know following what everyone else is doing. Um, so from a financial perspective, uh, that's why I think we've seen a, a really uh, rapidly growing interest in what we're doing. Um, from a impact perspective, I think that you know when Ricardo would count himself amongst one of these folks who spent a lot of time, in the nonprofit sector doing research before we started Echo and Encourage, um, I think that there's a recognition that the scale of transformation that society needs to go through to address not just some of the issues around environmental uh, challenges, climate, decimated fisheries, um, lack of fresh water, all these kind of environmental challenges, but also social challenges around poverty and inequality, gender issues, that the scale of the problems um, necessitate more capital than government and philanthropy can provide uh, themselves. And we are, we are true believers in systemic change and that policy uh, is really one of the best ways to drive systemic change. But one of the insights I think we've had, which which we're really committed to, is that we think that uh, clever investing that generates returns, but also creates uh, social and environmental benefits for benefits for stakeholders, 
can also drive changes in public policy. So it's not kind of a static, you have a good enabling regulatory environment and then you can invest in good things. It's that investing in things that make money and generate social and environmental positive externalities enable policymakers to create better policy, to enforce it, and to align the interests of government, uh, nonprofits, local communities, and business in a way that um, just kind of driving change through policy or philanthropy or government alone can't solve. So we really came at this from both the impact perspective and the thematic investing perspective as a pure commercial investor. Right. So when you say a pure commercial investor, essentially, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that the the people who 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 give you funds, they're looking for commercial rates of returns. They are. This is. There is no concessionary finance here. Impact is good. Impact is important. But fundamentally, they are looking for the kinds of rates of returns, um, risk-adjusted rates of returns, which you know would, in in a sense, kind of conventional investment theory would support. Correct. And I think what's changed in the last few years is that a lot of purely commercial investors have come into what a lot of us would consider impact or sustainability markets because they think that they can generate alpha looking at these themes. Um, and that has, frankly, a really nice alignment uh, with what we're uh, trying to do. Um, but we think it's important to come at these types of investments from both perspectives, the pure financial thematic perspectives and the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, impact first, impact driven, mission oriented. Right, right. And would, would all of your investments then have an impact element? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we think that that's a core part of our competitive advantage is investing in businesses that somehow take advantage of or benefit from some of these thematic changes uh, or opportunities that are directly connected to impact. Um, right. Why, why, I'm interested in that, Jason. Why should it be the case that, you know, these thematic areas generate higher rates of returns? I mean, a lot of them are in, you know, areas... Yeah. No, yeah, sure, sure, and I understand. But a lot of them are, you know, assets that, you know, used to be in the commons, perhaps, or, you know, belonging to, you know, uh, countries or as a whole, um, you know, now now private capital, uh, in, in some cases, you know, is, is coming in there. What What's the logic? You know, I can understand, I suppose, you know, if you're talking about Microsoft, or you're talking new technologies and things like that, we can understand. But where, you know, what's the, the, the driver of these, you know, I mean, I won't call them excess returns but they are you know alpha i guess in a sense you could say is something like that but you know higher than expected returns well so i think there are a lot of things that people can invest in that will not generate uh, risk adjusted returns that are uh greater than kind of a conventional investment and those investments are still investments but they should be funded with uh, government money or concessionary capital or there, there are lots of other types of finance. There's obviously in the, in the world today a lot of people who are really interested in concessional uh, capital, right? So 
whether it's DFIs or big foundations making program-related investments. I think there's a lot of super interesting opportunities uh, in the concessional capital space. Yes. I guess all we're saying is that we are focused on those investment opportunities that sit in a different part uh, of the return spectrum that are commercial. So to give you an example, we wrote a report uh, on how you could use private capital to save the Colorado River that the Walton Family Foundation sponsored, and we wrote a report on how you could use private capital to save the oceans and feed the world that Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Rockefeller Foundation uh, sponsored. And in both of those instances, we outlined a series of blueprints which basically were uh, potential investment opportunities based on real deals that we'd seen. Um, and those opportunities were ones that we felt across the entire return spectrum. We outlined some opportunities we thought needed to use concessionary capital from DFIs or from foundations or other philanthropically oriented investors, and we outlined strategies that we thought could generate uh, commercial risk-adjusted risk returns based on our research. As a firm, then Encourage decided, hey, look, we're only going to pursue the strategies in our research that we think are generating commercial risk-adjusted returns, but in fact, uh, several nonprofits have taken some of the ideas we outline in these reports and they've actually turned them into, um, in one case, a uh, PRI-driven water strategy and another case, a PRI-driven invest investment strategy in fisheries in Asia. So, you know, we believe that you need all kinds of capital to solve problems. We just think that our orientation, our experience, um, our uh, culture uh, should be focused on deals that uh, are at that kind of optimizing for impact and financial return intersection. Right, right. That's interesting. Now, you, I, I wasn't going to jump into this right now, but you did mention the archetypes. And I was looking through, I think there's one called the Mang strategy, a small scale Brazil, generating 12% leveraged equity return. That seems to be a pretty high kind of return. How, how does that work? Well, yeah. Well, that's probably not good enough for a lot of emerging markets, private equity investors. So, <laughs> so we're actually not pursuing deals in Brazil right now. Um, I mean, I, you know, risk return, commercial, risk adjusted, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And <laughs> in some ways, it's a very artificial uh, construct and certainly working at Generation and working for folks like David Vaught and Mark Ferguson taught me that um, quite conclusively. Uh, but um, I, I do think that there are... Um, Somebody would look at that and say, oh, that's a commercial deal. And somebody would look at that and say, that's uh, Yes, yes, yes. I Don't, tell yeah. you that a 12% return on equity in a Brazilian wild-caught fisheries project is, is on the border. <laughs> because of the macroeconomic risk in, in, in Brazil, we decided not to pursue it. Now, we could change our minds. We could come back to it at some other point. But you've actually... 
picked a great example where, geez, I mean, who knows what's commercial, what's concessionary. It's all in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, you talk about ecosystem-based investment strategies. What, what do they look like, Jason? Sounds very interesting. So for ecosystem-based investment strategies, we're really talking about um, opportunities to value natural capital um, and ecosystem services. And the way we think about that is uh, looking for opportunities where through some market mechanism, uh, someone will pay for the value that is being created by preserving, uh, protecting, restoring some type of ecosystem service. So there are quite a few projects like that uh, where because of regulation, uh, so mitigation banking markets in the U.S., they uh, define how you can generate revenues for preserving and restoring wetlands or area where there's where areas where there are bio, where there's biodiversity uh, then the carbon markets are obviously places where you can generate we think risk adjusted commercial financial returns because there is a regulation that defines how much money you can make from you know sucking a, a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and then there are also markets where the value that you're creating for preserving or restoring an ecosystem is not expressed clearly in a kind of unit of uh, impact that the government or someone else pays for, but is expressed in terms of what people are willing to pay. So in our sustainable seafood strategy, what we're really basing uh, – our strategy on is the fact that we think that people will pay more for sustainably caught seafood because uh, um, and packaged in new ways and product innovation and you know all kinds of other business improvements to seafood companies that sell sustainable seafood. But in an underlying way, you know, retailers and consumers are willing to pay more for something where there is a social and environmental benefit. So that's kind of a soft way of uh, generating more income from ecosystem markets and ecosystem services. Yes, yes, excellent. Um, this is very good, Jason. I'm just picking up a slight kind of tapping noise. Is that a, a, the keyboard or it's just c- coming across a little bit? I don't know whether there's some other sound coming through. Sorry to be so <laughs> on top of the sound, but it just sure, does. Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Don't don't worry, don't worry. Yes, don't worry, don't worry. Um, sometimes yeah, it comes across just a kind of a, a, a tinny sound and things. I I let you know if that that. Uh, so um, that's very interesting. Can you talk about the carbon markets for a moment because I know this is something that has uh, well, it's disappointed some people, I suppose, with all the progress and the Paris and and so forth and COP twenty two and COP twenty three unfolding right now. That this there hasn't been more progress on this carbon pricing. What effect would that have, do you think? You've been very involved in carbon related investments. So I think, you know, we've seen a couple cycles in carbon investing. And when I was with Generation, we did invest in a few of the early carbon markets related opportunities that were created by the European Emissions Trading Scheme. Uh, so we are investors in listed companies that uh, benefited 
from the development of that uh, market. Unfortunately, that market uh, collapsed for a combination of political and economic reasons that certainly aren't worth going into at that point. <laughs> but I do think that um, that market will return at some point. Uh, the markets that have worked, in our view, are the California and some of the other potentially Western U.S. and Canadian carbon markets. And so you know, we made our bet on the California carbon market, uh, which has been remarkably consistent in terms of its pricing, but also in terms of the legislative and political and regulatory support for that market. Yes. Um, however, you know, even if you look at the U.S., there are things like Reggie, the regional, gra- regional greenhouse gas initiative, which covers a number of northeastern states. Um, China looks serious about implementing a carbon market. There's a number of other carbon markets coming online that even though they might not be investable at this point, you know, we think that somewhere between 40, 40 to 50% of the world's carbon emissions uh, will be regulated um, through carbon markets by the end of next year. So now whether all those markets are investable with private capital is another question, but it seems super clear that those markets, despite some of the disappointment of Europe, obviously there's disappointment here. We didn't pass a global cap and trade system, but you know, these things happen. Um, you know, there are real markets, people are making real money. They are growing and we think they'll continue to grow. Right, right. And uh, do you have a sense of carbon pricing? I mean, it seems to be at the moment a lot of people saying it's very, very low. Um, I know there's shadow, many companies use shadow prices and that they vary uh, significantly. Do you have a sense of what kind of uh, rate would be a good rate for the market or evolving kind of even? California's right now is, uh, California right now is at um, $12. Yes. That's a real, that's a really, really good price for carbon. There's a lot of um, mitigation that's happening because of that price. And there's also a lot of new project development that's happening at that price. And there's also a lot of people making money in those markets. So 12 is a good price. I mean, you know, we had, um, you know, a brief run in California where, I mean, in Europe where the prices reach, you know, 25, I think. Um, and I think certainly a carbon price of 25 to 30 is a really important one to drive a lot of industrial transformation. But at 12 bucks, a lot of people change their behavior. Really, right, right. That's interesting because I, I know it's two or three bucks. It's you know, which is where a lot of voluntary markets are. It, it, not a lot of people are going to change what they're doing because of that. Uh, what What do you think would happen if it did reach twenty five or thirty? And I guess uh, what What would it take to, to to do that? Because this is a part regulation, I suppose. Um, a big drivers regulation, really, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, carbon. They have to be. I mean, they've got to be created by regulatory fiat. I mean, you know, they have to be created. Look at $25 a ton. It all depends on what the consequences are. So it depends on what is the cap and trade program, how it's administered. But at $25 a ton in the California market, 
you know, you see a lot of people investing a lot of money to reduce their carbon emissions, and depending on how the offset market is set up, you see a lot of people uh, developing projects to capture carbon from, you know, methane from cows. We work on uh, um, changing agricultural and timber management practices. You see a lot of behavior change really fast on the emissions and on the mitigation side at $25 a ton. Right, I've gone down a little bit of a side alley here, but it is very, very interesting considering your your proximity to the market and the, how you've been involved. What would it take to get the to, to move the, the the needle, you know, more to twenty twenty five? Well, like a lot of things, I think it's a it is a uh, it's a political and a stakeholder problem. So I think um, companies need to believe that they can adapt their businesses to that, that, that scale of carbon price. And uh, politicians need to believe that if they support that carbon price, that they won't tank the economy or economic growth. And so I think we're building evidence in California that a lot of that is possible, uh, but we're building it incredibly slowly. <laughs> And we're building it in a way that I think that to get back up to $25 a ton, you know, we'd need a couple of years of well-functioning carbon markets kind of working in the call it 12 to $18 a ton range. Yes, yes, yes. Now, can you talk a little bit of... Yes. <laughs> well, it's inter- interesting to hear your perspective because, yeah, I, I know some companies have significantly higher figures, shadow prices they use internally. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess that is one way of focusing people's attention. Um, I know yeah. it's not, not, not a silver bullet per se, but it does seem to uh, deal with the you know, externality problems and, uh, you know, in a, in a very direct way. Although I guess there are issues about how regressive these taxes can be as well. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, what? Looking forward, where are your folk? Where are you focusing your attention as a firm? I mean, I know you've got a, a, a number of different areas. You've got the water. You've got sustainable seafood. Um, I mean, uh, I guess these are. I mean, the carbon market, as you say, has been you know in various guises around for a while. But some of these are are, are fairly nascent, really.
the capital allocated to the sector. And I'm saying impact investing specifically just because I'm really thinking about um, private. Yes, yes, yeah. But I think the way the world is changing is that there are enough really exciting opportunities to invest capital in ways that generate commercial returns and impact in much larger companies and projects than people realize, such that we need to reorient the way people think about the size and scale of impact investing. I think there's a lot of people who think of impact investing as you know, very high risk venture investing, or, uh, you know, when they think of impact investing in seafood, they think of quote unquote, artisanal seafood. Uh, and what we're trying to say is, look, no, there's actually uh, a very large market of, you know, seafood companies that we can invest in in Latin America that are at a significant scale, 50 to $100 million in revenue, you know, very profitable, reasonable EBITDA margins that we consider impact investing and that there are in ag and renewables and water, very large scale products, uh, project opportunities that should also be considered impact investing, but many people don't think of it that way because they're oriented around these kind of niche boutique products or startups as what they consider investing or you know social environmental investing, sustainability. So I mean, we have a number of investment vehicles, funds, development companies, investment holding companies that we're raising in sustainable seafood, in inclusive finance, specifically around renewables in India and other areas, in carbon markets, in sustainable infrastructure and water. But I think a big emphasis of ours in the next you know, six to 18 months is going to be trying to demonstrate to people that these are large-scale commercial opportunities and not just kind of niche strategies, which I think is a perception that many investors have of this market. Right, right. That's very interesting. I mean, I guess private equity markets or investors typically tend to be longer term and, you know, have less liquidity and so forth. Is that the case here? I mean, what can you do? I mean, presumably the kinds of returns that, you know, uh, are being generated would hopefully draw, you know, capital in and that kind of scenario. Yet, you know, Presumably, some of these investments are over seven, ten years. Uh, well, I think the industry is really oriented towards investing uh, over the long term. So I, you know, I'm not that worried. I mean, it would be better if there were more illiquid products. I mean, more liquid products that would make it easier for people to invest. But but I think that in general that the market is ready for kind of illiquid at scale, uh, impactful products, so long as they can generate uh, these commercial, demonstrate that they can generate these commercial investor returns. Yeah, I guess just saying that it takes time, presumably, to show the track r- record of, of those investments. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. No, it's because uh, because it's it's growing very fast. You know, on the face of it, the impact investment uh, world, and yet it's still a, a a tiny proportion of you know overall investment flows. And when you see some of the figures that are you know being bandied around, to, you know to 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 hit the SDGs, for example, you're talking about you know seven trillion dollars and 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 you know massive massive sums of money. Um, so something needs to happen. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Well, great. So I just, I guess, uh, the kind of institutions that you invest in are, are there aren't that many, I suppose, in the smaller scale, early stage type situation with social entrepreneurs. What you're talking about is organisations really at a at a larger scale that are you know growing fast and and, and want to grow more. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Well, fantastic, Jason. That's been very interesting to talk to you. Um, really insightful um, to get a sense of, uh, you know, how you see things evolving. Um, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you very much. I, I look forward to seeing how all this evolves and we should stay in touch and hear, hear, hear what you think about how the market's moving. We certainly think it's moving in the right way. Yes, thank you. I, I, I think we didn't discuss there. You think is 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 particularly germane. Um, I think we've covered. You know, um, I want to give details of your website so people can go and uh, find out more information. I guess we did talk about the kind of investor group that you're looking at, more family offices. I mean, I guess the question about things like pension funds, you know, when will pension funds, how important are are, are different kinds of investors? You've talked about family offices um, and so forth, uh, foundations. What about uh, pension funds? How important are they in the market? And yeah. I think they're super important, and some are moving quickly, and some are moving slowly. But I think in general, they're they're followers, and, and they'll follow the the families and the more sophisticated asset owners uh, down the road. But I don't think it's fair to expect them to be uh, leaders. Yes, yes, brilliant, brilliant. Thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's been really nice to talk to you. Very informative. I wish you wish you the very best success. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.